0: John's Christmas story is a bit unconventional. In John's rendering, there are no shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. There's not a mention of the city of Bethlehem, a star, a stable, or even an overpopulated inn. In John's version, you don't find a mention of Mary or Joseph. The name King Herod is not even implied you will not find wise men who come from the east bearing gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And John's gospel, his Christmas story, it's a bit unconventional. And while I'll agree with you that none of the traditional elements of Christmas are found in his version of the Christmas story, let me also submit to you this morning that John's Christmas story is fundamentally foundational To our understanding of Christmas. If it wasn't for John's version, then you and I just might not know the true identity of the Christ of Christmas. So with that in mind, I invite you to take a Bible, turn to the Gospel of John. As I read the first 18 verses of that opening chapter, once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 1, read through verse 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Have you ever stopped to consider how the four Gospels begin? All four of the Gospels have a different launching point. It is Mark who begins his gospel with the baptism of Jesus, indicating the beginning of the Messiah's three-year public ministry. Luke begins about 30 years earlier by weaving together the birth narrative of John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. Matthew, he goes back even further some 2100 years as he traces the line and lineage of Jesus through 42 generations going back all the way to father Abraham but John John trumps them all he goes all the way back to the to the beginning in fact he says that the origin of this gospel is found in the beginning it's in the beginning that we find the beginnings of this great good news gospel. For John, who is rather unconventional, the the Christmas story, the beginning of the gospel is not found at the public ministry of Jesus or at the birth of Jesus in a Bethlehem barn, or even to trace him back 2,100 years to Father Abraham. But the beginning of Jesus is found in the beginning. When you hear that phrase, your mind races back to the opening line of the entire book, doesn't it? For in Genesis 1-1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And John says, that's the starting point. That's the place that all of this begins. In the beginning, John writes, in the beginning was the word. Now many of you realize that the Greek word that's translated word is logos. The Stoics believe logos was the rational principle by which everything derives its meaning. Philo said that logos was... The ideal man. The word actually means word or expression. In the Hebrew mindset, Logos is always connected to the powerful activity of God in creation and deliverance. There's always a connection between God's powerful activity in creation and deliverance. You look at a place like Psalm chapter 33. And the psalmist says, it is by the word of the Lord that the heavens came to be. You look at a place like Psalm 107, that God sent forth his word and they were healed. He rescued them from the grave. Everywhere in the Old Testament, the Hebrew mindset, where there's this imagery of logos, where's this imagery of the word of God, it is always connected to God's activity in creation and deliverance. The million dollar question is who is Logos? Who is the word of God? John says this is a wonderful, glorious mystery that God has revealed to us. So who is Logos? I guess any of us could be Logos, but he quickly eliminates most if not all of us. For John gives us a few clues. He gives us a few characteristics of this one who's identified as Logos. First, he says that he is co-eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Not only is he co-eternal, but he's co-equal with God. For in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, just right there, that eliminates all of us, doesn't it? There's no way that any of us could be Logos because this word of God has to be co-eternal and co-equal with God. See, John doesn't want us to make the same mistake that Arius will make in the fourth century. Arius was a theologian who was declared a heretic because Arius said that there was a time when the Logos was not. Not. Now, Arius battled a guy by the name of St. Augustine. You may not know Arius, that's good. You might know St. Augustine, that's even better. Because St. Augustine said that the theology of Arius is not biblical, it's heretical. Because he is declaring there was a time when the Logos was not. Yet here John clearly says that Logos has always been co-eternal, co-equal God. John also doesn't want us to make the same heretical mistake of present-day heretics. Take, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses. In their opening line of John's glorious gospel, they insert the article A. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Now, if you press a Jehovah's Witness on this point, they will quickly respond with you by saying, well, in the Greek language, the Greeks did not use alpha the same way that we use A. So we can just insert an A and it helps to clarify the interpretation. My friend, Jehovah's Witnesses have not clarified the interpretation. They've confused the interpretation. Because Logos, Jesus That's who we identify him as. John does not identify him until verse 17, Jesus the Christ. We know him as Jesus. Jesus is not a God. He's not a creation of God or a lesser God or another God or merely like God. He is God. He is God in the flesh. He is co-eternal, co-equal God. I like what D.A. Carson said in his commentary on the Gospel of John. He said that Logos is not the full Godhead. For we understand that God is Trinitarian. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. But the deity of the Godhead fully rests upon Jesus. That the full deity of God, that the full deity of the Trinity, it fully, squarely rests on Jesus. He is co-eternal, co-equal God. Whenever we diminish jesus we deny his identity whenever we demote him we deny his identity there is a great urge in humanity to make less of jesus to demote him he is a god To demote him, he was a good teacher. To demote him, he was a fabulous religious leader. To demote him, he was merely a miracle worker. Whenever we demote Jesus, whenever we make less of him, we deny his identity and we go beyond the bounds of being biblical into the realm of being heretical. I, for one, do not think that we can make too much of Jesus. I know that we have a tendency to make less of him, but I'm here to tell you, I don't think we can make too much of him. I don't think we can think about him too much. I don't think we can talk to him too much. I don't think we can pray to him too much. I don't think we can sing to him too much. I don't think we can serve him too much. I don't think we can worship him too much. I don't think we can uh, contemplate him too much. I don't think we can make too much of Jesus. And I think I'm in good standing because the apostle Paul would agree with me. For he writes in Philippians that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord someday the day is coming when everybody will recognize that Jesus truly is who he said he is Jesus is the co-eternal uh, co-existent the co-equal Godhead he is the second person of the Trinity he is fully God and fully man there's coming a day when every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Christ that Jesus Is the Lord. Now we can either acknowledge him now. Or we can acknowledge him then. We can acknowledge him now by faith. Or we can acknowledge him then by force. We can acknowledge him now. Out of conviction. Or we can acknowledge him then. Out of compulsion. But either way. Everybody will declare. Yep. Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And John writes this. So that we may know the identity of Logos. He is co-eternal he is co-equal God he's also creator for through him all things were made without him nothing was made that has been made John would agree with Paul for Paul will write in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 that he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God he's the firstborn over all creation For by him, all things were made in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were made by him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. The author of the Hebrew text will write that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son whom he appointed, through whom he made the universe. This logos is one who is creator. He not only is co-eternal, not only is he co-equal, but he is creator. John gives us another clue, another characteristic. He says that he is life giver. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus will say of himself in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will no longer walk in darkness. I always find it very interesting that this is the only messianic metaphor that Jesus uses of himself and us, his children. For in Matthew chapter five, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, you are the light of the world. This is the only analogy. This is the only messianic metaphor that Jesus will share with us. Jesus will say, I'm the bread of life, but he'll never say you are the bread of life. He will say, I am resurrection in life, but he'll never say you are resurrection in life. He'll say, I am the way, truth, and the life, but he'll never say you are the way, the truth, and the life, but he does say, I am the light of the world, and he'll turn around and say, you are to be the light of the world. Jesus identifies himself as the life giver. He is light. Also in a conversation with Martha, as they're grieving the death of Lazarus, Jesus will say to her, I am resurrection and life. He who lives and believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this? And Martha will respond, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who has come into the world. Jesus identifies himself as that co-eternal, co-equal, creator, life giver. You get to Verse 6, it's the first time that the author gives us a name. There came a man named John. And before you jump to conclusions thinking, well, John must be the Logos. John is not the Logos. In fact, he came bearing testimony to the light. The whole Christmas story is given to us in verse 9. It's the hinge of this opening prologue of John's gospel. For you get to verse 9, and John writes that the true light... The light gives light to every man had come into the world. My friends, that's Christmas. That's John's Christmas story. That the true light, the light that gives light to every man had come into the world. This is what Isaiah foretold 700 years earlier. That those groping in darkness have now seen a great light. The light has come It's as if we as humans are groping around in darkness and someone has come and turned on the light switch and the purpose of light is to dispel darkness and so Jesus has come and he has given us the true light the light of every man and woman boy and girl Now, that's good news. That's the evangelion. That's the gospel. That those who are groping in darkness have now seen the great light. Those who were lost are now found. Those who were unsaved are now saved. Those um, who were uh, reprobates of God are now righteous children of God. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, you would think that everybody would receive this, right? But John quickly tells us that though he came to the world which he had created... The world did not recognize him. He came to his own, yet his own did not receive him. That's not only a slap in the face, that's the height of stupidity. He came to his own, yet his own did not receive him. They did not recognize him. They rejected him. The light had come, but people would rather grope around in darkness than to have the light of light in their life. Now before you get too depressed, thinking all hope is gone, everybody has rejected the Logos. Not everybody. For in verse 12, the author of our text tells us that to those who received him, to those who believe upon his name, he has given them the full rights and privileges to be declared children of God of God. Children, not born of uh, natural descent or human decision or a father's will, but born of God. Born by the will of God. Born by the power of God. Reborn into the spiritual kingdom of God. That Jesus the Logos has come. And those who received him, and the way you receive him is by believing upon his name. And when you believe upon his name, you go from no faith to faith. You go from being out of the kingdom to being into the kingdom. And you are Declared a child of God. On every page of John's gospel, John is an evangelist. On every single page, everything in John's gospel is about believing on the name of Jesus the Christ. Every chapter, every verse, every page. Everything is about how you go from no faith to faith and how you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For that and only that is the way that you receive him unto yourself. John is so consistent in this. In fact, you get to the very end. John chapter 20, verse 31, you find the purpose statement for this fourth gospel. But these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing... You too may have life in his name. John is consistent. He says, I wrote these things to evoke faith out of you. I wrote these things as evidence to convince you that Jesus is the Logos. I wrote these things so that you would know that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is co-eternal and co-equal. He is the creator. He is the life giver. I wrote these things so that you may believe. You ever stop to think about these things that John wrote? He could have written all kinds of stories. He could have recorded a host of things, but he wrote these things. Why? Why did he stuff his gospel track with these stories? So that you might believe. So that you... Might believe. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Logos. That Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, you would receive him. And by receiving him, you would receive full rights as a child of God. Oh, this is life and death kind of things. This is eternity hanging in the balance. And John says, I wrote these things so that you may believe. In John chapter 1, it is this Jesus who's identified as a lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In John chapter two, it is this Jesus who begins his public ministry by turning water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. In John chapter three, it is this Jesus who speaks to a man named Nicodemus who comes to him under the cover of night, which incidentally is the first Nick at night, and he tells him how to be saved. In John chapter four, it is this Jesus who's an equal opportunity savior, and he has a roadside conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well, and he tells her how to be saved. In John chapter 5, it is this Jesus who heals an invalid of some 38 years. In John chapter 6, it is this Jesus who feeds 5,000 men with 5 loaves of bread and 2 fish. In John chapter 7, it is this Jesus who says, if you believe in me, streams of living water will well up inside of you. In John chapter 8, it is this Jesus who gives grace to a woman caught in the act of adultery telling her to go and leave her life of sin. In John chapter 9, it is this Jesus who heals a man born blind. In John chapter 10, it is this Jesus who identifies himself as the good shepherd and the gate. In John chapter 11, it is this Jesus who raises his best friend Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 12, it is this Jesus who triumphantly enters the city of Jerusalem for the very last time of his life. In John chapter 13, it is this Jesus who becomes a servant and he washes not the hands but the dirty feet of his disciples. In John chapter 14, it is this Jesus who speaks the most explosive statement ever found on his lips when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 15, it is this Jesus who says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In John chapter 16, it is this Jesus who promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who believe. In John chapter 17, it is this Jesus who prays for himself, his disciples and for all believers. In John chapter 18, this Jesus is arrested. In John chapter 19, this Jesus is crucified. In John chapter 20, this Jesus is raised from the dead. And in John chapter 21, this Jesus reinstates a wayward apostle named Peter. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Logos. And by believing, you may have life in his name. On every page, John is an evangelist. Everything, he says, points to the identity of Jesus. You can't make too much of him. Do not try to diminish him. If you demote him, you enter into the realm of being a heretic. You don't want to make less of Jesus. You want to make more of Jesus. And you want to use your life the same way John used his life. To point people to the identity of the Logos. This is who Jesus is. Now, God is so concerned about your salvation... That the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. It's not that Jesus just made a cameo appearance on planet earth. It's not that he just was passing through. No, he came and he pitched his tent. He tabernacled with us. That's what the word means that he came and wrapped himself in flesh and he came and he dwelt with us. He looked like us. He spoke our language. He shared some of our concerns. He walked this sod. Jesus came and he set up shop for you and for me. It's that 16th century reformer, Martin Luther, who says of the incarnation, and I quote, it is God willingly sinking himself down into our flesh. God is so concerned, my friends, about your salvation that he's willing to send the second person of the Trinity, Logos himself, wrap the Logos In fragile flesh, send him through the birth canal of a virgin girl so that he may live a perfect life, die on a cruel cross because of your violent sin, and he would pay the debt that you and I owe, and that Jesus, though he was dead, on the third day will be raised from the dead. God is concerned about your salvation So much so that he pulled out all the stops. This great glorious Lagos wrapped himself in flesh for you and for me. My favorite Christmas card was given to me years ago by my sister. On the front of that card, it simply had these words. If our greatest need had been information, then God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, then God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, then God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, then God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. Therefore, God sent us a savior. God is so concerned about the salvation of lost humanity that he's willing to send Logos so that you and I may live. Jesus came and he lived among us, John writes. John identifies this one named John the Baptist. He's the one that came to give testimony to the light. He's the one who proclaimed that the one who comes after me is before me for he has surpassed me. Elsewhere, John, John will say, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. That was a task that was not even reserved for the lowest of servants, lowest of slaves. John says, I'm not even worthy to reach up to that level of insignificant individuals. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. He came after me, buddies before me, because he has long surpassed me. For in him. We have blessing upon blessing. The original language, it it, it speaks grace upon grace. That in him the logos. We have grace upon grace. It's, it's the imagery of, of wave upon wave cascading upon us. And I don't know about you, but I can give testimony that Jesus has graced me upon gracing me. That grace is not only a noun, it's a verb. That I have been graced, I have been shown grace, and that grace just constantly waves over my life. John says that the law the law was etched in stone by Moses, that great deliverer. But grace and truth is personified in the ultimate deliverer, Jesus the Christ. It's not until you and I get to verse 17. That John identifies the name of the Logos. See, I can't wait till verse 17. I've got to tell you 30 minutes ago who the Logos is. I just can't wait to verse 17. But John, as he writes it, he does not reveal the identity until he gets down to verse 17. That it is Jesus the Christ. And you and I have spoken before that Christ is not the last name of Jesus as if he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. And Christ is not the geographical location of Jesus, for you've heard of people in the old days who said Jesus of Nazareth as if Christ was Christland or Christville. No, Jesus the Christ is meaning this is his identity. This is who he is. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Who is this Logos? Jesus the Christ. Second question... Why has he come? The answer is given in verse 18. The one and only has come to make the Father known. He came to reveal God's character. He came to show us the love of God. The 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard One day, told the story, there was a particular prince who desperately wanted to find a woman of nobility to marry. So he went in search of this noble woman. He went outside the palace to quote unquote run some errands. He found himself in one of the poorest sections of town. He spotted a girl, fell in love. It was love at first sight. Soren Kierkegaard says that this prince would make repeated trips just to see this girl. He desperately wanted to marry her. But there was a problem. A king cannot marry a pauper. So he thought to himself, I have a few options. One is, I can change the rules and I can make her, order her to marry me. Or, the prince said, I could Dress up in royal robes, pull the finest chariot pulled by the six strongest horses. I could overwhelm her with the splendor of my majesty, or I could give up my royal robes, take on the clothes of a commoner, and go and live in that part of town. And that Soren Kierkegaard said that's exactly what the prince did. He went. And he spoke their language. He cared about what they cared about. He worked as hard as they worked. That girl fell in love with him. The girl fell in love with the prince because the prince had first loved her. And he demonstrated to her a deep level of love. You've already connected the dots. Soren Kierkegaard said that's exactly what Logos did it's exactly what God did in sending of Jesus. The reason Jesus came was to communicate one truth. That God loves poor peasant people like you and like me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. When you and I peer into the manger we cannot help but to see the shadow of the cross of Calvary. For when we look into the manger, even there, seeing that little bitty baby Jesus, we cannot help but to know that Jesus came to seek and to save lost paupers like us. It's the first song I ever learned. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loved me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. He's the one who washed away my sin to let this little child come in. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so. John writes his prologue. He begins his gospel from a totally different launching point. Not at the ministry of Jesus, not at the birth of Jesus, not even linking Jesus 2100 years through 42 generations to Father Abraham, but Jesus is but John begins his gospel in the beginning, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. This word became flesh and lived among us. Why? Because the one and the only has come to make God known. Do you know Lagos? Do you know him personally? Have you received him For the way you receive him is by faith, believing upon his name. My friends, if you have not, then today, I urge you to receive the greatest Christmas gift ever given. Eternal life in Jesus Christ. Maybe, beloved, you're here today and you are a believer. But there's somebody in your family who's not. And today, during the invitation, I want to ask you to come in their place, to kneel right here and to pray for them specifically. Oh God, please open up his eyes or her eyes under your salvation this Christmas season. However, the spirit of God is leading you. Today, you respond. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we do give you this invitation. The Lord, if there's one here who does not recognize the true light that has come to every man and woman boy and girl i pray that today that the light turns on and dispels darkness father for those people who are here and we have family members that do not know you they're groping around in darkness we bump into people groping in darkness all the time and lord may our heart break over the darkness that's around us as it breaks your very heart So, Father, help this altar to be full of prayers that are lifted up to you. Lord, draw people unto yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.